Hey, Carrie, how is it with your soul today? Well, hey, Parker, it's many layered right now. There's amazing things. It's autumn in Indiana, which I always love and uh, is so good for my heart. But also there's a lot going on in the world that's been kind of weighing heavy this week. Yeah, lots happening in the world right now. And we're going to try to take a bite of a chunk of it today around American politics as we move into 2024, an election year. So, welcome to The Growing Edge. I'm Parker Palmer. And I'm Carrie Newcomer. To the words and habit in between us And to us and how we live between the words Carrie, it's, it's hard for me to believe that we're already arriving at the start of another election year. Equally hard for me to believe that my book, Healing the Heart of Democracy, was published in 2011. That mm. seems like millennia ago, politically. A lot yeah. has happened since then. So what we'd like to do today is to revisit the themes of that book in light of what we, the people, will be facing in 2024. And I know for both of us, there's a quote about democracy by Terry Tempest Williams that means a lot uh, and kind of helps us ground our thinking and our acting uh, in this complex and uh, conflicted field. So do you want to read that quote for us to get us started? I'd love to. I'd love to. Um, the human heart is the first home of democracy. It is where we embrace our questions. Can we be equitable? Can we be generous? Can we listen with our whole beings, not just our minds, and offer our attention rather than our opinions? And do we have enough resolve in our hearts to act courageously, relentlessly, without giving up ever, trusting our fellow citizens to join with us in our determined pursuit of a living democracy? Terry Tempest Williams has given us a great gift by, by offering a very different answer to the question, where did democracy <clears throat> get started? than the answer that we normally give. I mean, normally we talk about a historical incident, a document, a bunch of people, uh, some action they took. But Terry Tempest Williams goes, I think, right to the heart of the matter. And she says, like all things human, democracy begins in the human heart. It, it begins in human sensibility, in human experience, and in human choice-making. Um, as do all things human. And, and if you look at the quote with care, it's a very discerning quote. She, she doesn't say that the heart always embraces democracy. She's, she's not being sentimental about this. The truth is no. the human heart yeah. does not always embrace democracy. Sometimes it embraces authoritarianism or fascism or other forms of cruelty. But Terry Tempest Williams says, what happens in the human heart is we decide on the answers to the questions that either set us in a democratic direction or not. And 
she kind of defines the wrestling match that we each have to go uh, enter into uh, and work our way to the other side in order to figure out whether we're going to have a living democracy or, or something else. At least that's how I read it. Yeah, and I, I again, I love this quote. Um, you know, because it does ground it, as you said, in a, in a very different place. You know, the choices and the questions we hold here in our human hearts um, and, and that we make daily in every encounter and not just in the polling booth, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, I think the dailiness, I think the dailiness is a really important piece. I'm glad you, you lifted that up because this means that in every moment of our lives, we're wrestling with something that that will ha- will have an outcome in the external world and if we choose greed instead of generosity that's going to impact the world around us and us ourselves if we choose you know an inequitable solution we won't be entering into an, an equitable democracy so yeah those decisions that we make every day i think have a great impact and and I think that's really empowering, you know, how she frames this, because I think sometimes we think about politics and we think about the wide story of it, and we get a lot of information that's coming from from Washington. But that democracy doesn't, you know, happen just in Washington, mm-hmm. that it happens in the human heart, that it happens in our daily encounters, in our daily actions. So I find that really empowering that each one of us makes a difference. Another another theme that I know both you and I love comes to mind as you speak. Um, a lot of us think, well, in order to, to be a good citizen of the United States, I need to keep up with this fire hose of information that keeps mm-hmm. getting sprayed in my face. And there's some truth in that. You do need to know stuff in order to be a good citizen. But the news from within is as important as the news from out there. And understanding how to read the news of the heart and how to keep up with the news of the heart and, 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 and how to transform the news of the heart is a critical element of the whole equation that leads or not to democracy or not. Well, and I think there were some, some points in the book. You know, I've been revisiting the book myself. I loved it when it came out, and I think it's still you know, so vibrantly contemporary right now and so important right now. And, you know, there's different kinds of ideas that it presents um, always leading back to the heart. You know, one being that democracy is going to depend on how we hold our differences. Because, you know, you get nine people, you're going to have nine different ways that they answer a question or they... um, an experience with that question. So how are we going to hold attention of our differences is such an important piece of the puzzle. Absolutely. I I think what most American citizens know, given a kind of basic education in uh, the history, the external history of democracy, is that the founders set up a tension-holding system in the institutions of our government because they understood that holding tension creatively was going to be the long-term key to democracy's success. 
Um, they knew that there would be radical differences of opinion. They had them among themselves. Yeah. Um, I mean, I'm very fond of quoting the fact that in the uh, in 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 the Constitutional Convention of 1787, I think it was, um, a third of the delegates disagreed so radically that they refused to sign off on the Constitution. Um, yeah. Only two thirds of Americans, even at that time, could agree that this that this is the way forward. So holding tension has been a long-term uh, issue, concern at the heart of American democracy. And we have an institutional setup with a legislative, a judicial, and an executive branch that, which, is, which are intended to operate independently and hold tension creatively with various ways to resolve those tensions. What we sometimes miss is that if those institutions are occupied by people who can't hold tension creatively within themselves, they aren't going to work. And that includes yeah. us, you and me, we the people as citizens. And so reflecting deeply on our own capacity for te creative tension holding uh, is, is a, is a critical piece of making American democracy what it is meant to be every day a more perfect union. And I'm just going to say it, it's a messy process. I mean, I think there's this mythology, you know, I'm so glad you quoted that amazing fact that a third of the, the delegates said a pox on y'all, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, we're mm -hmm. out of here. And that this mythology that we all go off into the sunset together in this kind of easy ride, um, it's messy. It's messy on the, on the large scale, and it's messy on the personal scale. But it can be incredibly creative and life-giving. And um, I don't know, for me, it's, it's really asked me to grow and learn and, you know, that creative tension holding is not always easy for me. So it's really asked me to lean into the better uh, yeah. angels of my own nature. Yeah, me too. I mean, it, when I think about my own life, a very simple observation, if I hadn't been challenged to hold tensions creatively as, as time went on, I'd still be thinking the way I did in eighth grade, uh, you know, with, with nary a new thought, with nary a new way of understanding the world, nary a new way of entering and engaging the world. Yeah. Any process of education, any process of personal growth is, is all about holding tension creatively. And, and I, I think we, we uh, sometimes, uh, I at least, use that phrase in a rather facile way. So let me try to be a little more specific about what I mean by creative tension holding, because yeah. I think this is an important piece that we sometimes forget to name. Um, when, you, when we're talking about ordinary, run-of-the-mill differences of opinion, let's say in the political realm, you and I differ on taxation policies, who should get taxed more heavily and why, or we disagree on 
the federal regulation of business and industry, who should get regulated, how heavily, and why. What, what we're looking for in creative tension holding is a way of either a way of meeting in the middle where we can exercise our human capacity to make compromises that don't fundamentally threaten our integrity, where we can, mm-hmm. where we can yeah. say, okay, I'll give you this, and you say, okay, I'll give you that, and we, and we find a creative middle between two opposing positions where we can work things out, which still satisfy both of us to some extent in terms of serving the common good. Or we hold our differences long enough and thoughtfully enough that we discover some transcendent synthesis of our two positions. So it's, it's not just a compromise in the middle, but it's actually a third idea that hadn't occurred to either one of us before. And so, you know, normally in the course of American politics or just everyday life, we, we can do business that way, right? Yeah, and, and that idea of the creative third way can't happen unless some space is allowed for something creative to happen, that, that um, the emergence of a third way, of a third idea, um, sometimes is finding the compromise. But, you know, often that, that creative third way um, is innovative and, I don't know, in terms of that movement forward, really important. Right. And, and I think what we're facing today, Carrie, is a really challenging situation for a lot of us where some of the differences between us are differences that can't be held creatively. Now, that, yeah. that's a hard thing to say for someone like me who really believes in creative tension holding. But not all differences are created equal. We can have a good, healthy debate about taxation or about federal regulation. But how about this? I say, let's talk. And the person on the other side of the table says, I'm going to let my, my AR-15, my automatic rifle, talk for me. There's, there's, no, there's, no, there. there's no common ground between my desire to engage in nonviolent conversation and dialogue, and the other guy's desire to show up at the state legislature with a bunch of heavily armed buddies to intimidate and threaten uh, a conversational process that's meant to take us somewhere. It seems to me that today, people who want to be good citizens are faced with the really difficult task of saying, you and I have nothing to talk about. And I find that to be, um, as someone like yourself, who really believes in the importance of holding creative tension, of stepping back, of hearing the story, you say, turn to wonder, you know? And I, I think about that phrase all the time, Parker. And and who really believes in the importance of that and the goodness that can come from it and the new understandings that can come from that. But, yeah, that all differences aren't created equal. And there are differences now that I'm finding myself 
unable to hold creative tension with because there is no middle ground. And what do I do with that? How do I then negotiate? What is my the best action for me, for my soul, and for the world that I hope to see. You know, yeah. so it's a big question, the question between violence and nonviolence as part of the conversation. That's just a non-starter for me as well. Mm-hmm. Um, also, um, that there are facts and that there are no facts. That's a hard one for me to hold. You know, there's particular issues that the premise that there's a superior race. Or that there's a superior gender or a superior way of uh, expressing the fluidity of gender. That's just kind of a non-starter in terms of where can I actually have a conversation. Or a superior religion. That or a superior to, religion. to dominate the, the, the civil order. This is mm-hmm. a really painful area of exploration and that's why I think we it ought is. to explore it. Um, I often feel that the more more pain we have around a subject, the more deeply we need need to get into it um, and see see where it might take us. Yeah, let's just take, for example, election denialism. Um, I've had a couple of conversations with people who say, well, the 2020 election, I can't I can't honor the Biden presidency because the 2020 election was massively rigged. And I'd say, okay, what's the evidence? And there never is any evidence. It may take them quite a while to get around to acknowledging that, but even when they acknowledge it, it doesn't make any difference to them. They say, there, you know, there are very smart people who understand things that I don't understand, like how voting machines work and how they can be rigged. And they will come forth with that evidence at a time when it's timely to do so. Well, Mm. it's been a couple years, almost three uh, by my count, and no evidence has been forthcoming yet. A lot of uh, these claims have been tested in court and found wanting. Um, I have yet to hear a compelling case based on anything other than what, what somebody is still holding secret for reasons that have never been explained to me, or what some guy named Q said, nobody knows who Q is or where he lives or by what authority he speaks, but Q said it, and so QAnon repeats it, and I'm supposed to believe it. Um, the, the, what really troubles me about this, Carrie, is that it's not just a personal dilemma, it, it's the sowing of seeds that ultimately undermine, uh, really poison seeds that undermine democracy and the ecosystem that allows it to thrive. We, we now have maybe a third of Americans believing that the last election, the last general election was massively rigged. That is not good for democracy. And, and that is not a narrative that I want to feed or encourage or support or even allow in, in any way by what I say, but by what I do. I'm, I'm reminded of Elie Wiesel, who is a hero for both you and me, survivor of 
two concentration camps, um, Nobel Prize winner, peacemaker, amazing teacher and, and witness, who, who took a very simple position. I am not going to engage in dialogue with a Holocaust denier because I refuse to feed that vicious lie and the evil to which it's attached. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just figure if that's good enough for Elie Wiesel, it's good enough for me. But when it boils down to family members, to friends, to yeah. associates at work, colleagues, people with whom we would like to be in good relationship, it's very, very difficult. And then we confront, and I'll, I'll say this and then shut up because I'm getting into deeper and deeper water and I'll need help swimming. <laughs> <laughs> the, 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 then, then we confront the the big, big question: What's love got to do with it? Right? Yeah. If we if we want to be, if we hope to be, if we aspire to be people animated by love in our relationships, and if we believe that love transforms and and love saves uh, and love heals. What's, what form does love take when we're talking with someone of the sort I just described? Is, is there an answer, even an answer to that question? Um, I think as Terry Tempest Williams, you know, so rightly and so concisely put, it's a question, and it's a, con a question that we keep asking ourselves on a daily basis in a relationship by relationship, conversation by conversation, um, uh, intentional action by action. You know, I, I don't know if there's a, a final answer, but I do know it's a question that I need uh, personally to continue to ask myself, what is the most loving response? And the most loving response um, may be to say, um, this is not something I can even engage with because to do that would be to lift it up in some way. You know, I, I remember uh, talking to Ariel Berger and des describing that about his teacher, Elie Wiesel. Um, you know, Elie Wiesel as a teacher, I mean, he did so much to help other people hold creative tension with differences. Um, and yet knew when there was a line that he couldn't cross with that, that um, it was not going to be effective or life-giving or helpful to engage in it. And I think about that a lot. Um, you know, I had an experience this, this week myself that just churned my insides for days. Um, but the best course of action for me in that moment was to say, you know, I'm not engaging. Um, I, I can't engage with this. Mm -hmm. And finding that line, you know, no, I will not lift up, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm not going to even honor, as, as Ellie Wazell said, a Holocaust denier, you know, I'm not going to lift that up or even give it space because it's kind of too evil to do that. And, and it, might, um, it might be, and I wonder what you think about this, that walking away from a conversation that you cannot engage with or do not choose to engage with could actually be an act of love 
in relation to the other person. It might be a wake-up call to somebody who, who says, oh, whoa, what, what, what did I just do that elicited this, this reaction? It could also be, of course, a, it could also lead to a further cementing of that person's position. I mean, let's, let's presume, to put it really simplistically, that there, there was a liberal conservative dilemma going on between you yeah. and that and that person that might con- walking away might confirm uh, the other person's opinion that liberals are intolerant and dismissive uh, mm-hmm. of folks yes. like me of folks like us but we and we really have no control over uh, the, the impact of of, of a decision that has integrity for us on the other person. So the ultimate question is, what has integrity for us? And mm. it's seemed yes. to me increasingly that trying to hang in with conversations that around topics that it, for which there is no middle ground, for which there is no transcendent third way, uh, is not loving. No, no, and and it's and you know also claiming it's not my responsibility how that's taken. Mm-hmm. You know, you know it may be a wake up call. It may be cementing something that is not what I intended. But you know, I think as long as uh, we walk away feeling that we acted in love and integrity, but it's a it's it is like I said, it's human and so it's messy. Uh, I have gone back and re- apologized. Because I didn't hold the tension in a in a way that was most um, filled with the kind of love and integrity that I would hope to be in the world, and I've gone back and apologized. You know what? That's an emotional topic for me, and I didn't hold that very well. Mm-hmm. And I want to I want to say that to you. And I think that's part of the growing process of holding creative differences that we're going to make mistakes, and you know. For people who care and care about how they walk in the world, how they affect others, we're going to make mistakes in it. And we're going to walk away and say, gosh, I should have said, I should have stayed in the conversation. Or, you know, I didn't hold that with enough space. Or I should have just walked away. It's going to be messy. And giving myself a ton of compassion with that and also giving others a ton of compassion with that if I can, always coming back to the heart. What is my grounding inner work here on this? And and that's kind of going back to Terry Tempest Williams again and to your book, that it all starts in the heart and that outer expression, when it's coming from a more grounded inner work, has a greater chance of presenting what we want it to present. Yeah, and, and a few minutes ago, Carrie, you you made made mention of turn to wonder, and I and I think you've just given us a really important example of a turning to wonder that a lot of us uh, don't think much about, which is to turn to wonder about ourselves and mm-hmm. how we react to different situations. So when you walked away and refused to talk, and then went home and started wondering, where did that come from in me? Oh, it came from the fact that I was at a particular moment of emotional vulnerability. 
And so perhaps I overreacted or, you know, failed to hold it with, with all of my faculties, because if I add a little rationality to my emotionality, the whole thing starts to look a little different. So I can now go back and, and say, I was wrong. Uh, let's, let's, let's talk. That, that's turning to wonder, isn't it? But it's wondering about me or, my, or, or oneself. And, and not just when I need to go back and reassess and say, mm, you know, I could have done that differently and I'm, going, and I'm going to use that as, you know, it's all data. You know, yeah. <laughs> every time we turn to wonder about ourselves as well as another, it's, it's really good data. It's like, oh, that's what happened. And there's also the opposite of saying, I, 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 I engaged. And this was one that, you know, in all integrity, I, I should have um, let go and just said, you know, this is not something I can lift up. Mm-hmm. This is not a conversation I can lift up. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, there's this great uh, quote from Molly Ivins, another one of my heroes, uh, Texas-based journalist, the late Molly Ivins, who just wrote so so wonderfully well about, about politics in particular. And this is a quote from her. Uh, the thing about democracy, beloveds, is that it is not neat, orderly, or quiet. It requires a certain relish for confusion. Um, I really love that that quote because it, <laughs> you know, what what we're talking about here are are things that fly right in the face of the Midwestern nice culture oh, gosh, of nice yes. in which you and I were raised. Among other things, nice means orderly. You know, there there is no confusion. There is no mess. We we keep it on the surface. So that we don't have to go into the, the you know, the, there be dragons uh, on yes. those on those old maps, and we we certainly never do anything that's vaguely confrontative, or abrasive, or Lord forbid, shocking. Um, but Molly Ivins is is saying, and I think we all have to say to our for, to ourselves, there is no creativity if you're not willing to engage the mess. And that's where creativity comes from. And, and, and so politics is a prime realm for creativity if we would learn to hold it that way, because it is just plain messy. Well, and I think too, you know, um, you know, that idea of hanging in there, we shall overcome is an anthem you know, we were talking the other day, you and I, about the language of that, we shall overcome. It doesn't mean we are all going to make nice mm-hmm. in the end. It means that there's an injustice and we are working to to um, overcome that injustice. Yeah. We are a, um, an agent for change here. Right. Yeah. And uh, of something that we see that, in that case, it was the premise of that there's a superior race that we're still pushing it back against in this in this country and um and i think that hanging in there with the the unfinished work of democracy you know because it is an unfinished process always will be and i think this is something that a lot of us are 
are are trying to find a way to navigate and hold, feeling a sense of clear and present danger right now, that there are forces that are operating in um, totalitarian or nationalist kinds of ways, including the, the pushback on privacy, um, the pushback on uh, voting rights, on pushback. I mean, there's a lot of things that are, you know, peaceful transition of power. There's so many things right now that are fundamental to make, that make a, um, that ongoing experiment of democracy actually a living democracy that's being pushed against in a pretty clear and present way. So, so that imperative to stay engaged, to be doing that inner work, the heart work of democracy, yeah, we shall overcome does not mean we shall all make nice. Yeah, I you know, I sang that song many, many times. I know you have too. And um and it was emblematic of a nonviolent movement. So yeah. as one sings it, one is not thinking about warfare or about win-lose. But we shall overcome says we're going to win. We are going to win the battle against fear and anger and alienation and hatred um and we're going to we're going to win decisively we're we're going to win in a way that makes this this that that ends this evil game um th- there is a spiritual warfare at at the heart of every nonviolent movement yes, and i I think it's a good time to to stop blinking that, to stop pretending that it might be otherwise, and to understand that making nice uh, doesn't get us anywhere in this. So, so the the question again is, what's what is the manifestation of of love under these circumstances of of a nonviolent witness? Um, to what one believes. And I, I think at the very simplest, it has to begin with speaking what you believe in every arena where your voice is heard. And it, and it doesn't matter what that arena is, how small or how obscure or even invisible you may feel it to be. But if you have a voice with your partner or your spouse, if you have a voice with your children or your grandchildren, if you have a voice in your congregation, um, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, speak it. I think that's the sort of minimal expectation of, of what it means to be a good citizen, is to understand that politics, again, taking us back to the micro level where Terry Tempest Williams got us started, Politics is about everyday speech, everyday acts, movements of the heart that get expressed in language and action. And we have to engage it on that level. And when we start thinking about politics that way, it opens up endless possibilities. We don't have to wait for the next election. We don't have to wait until we have enough discretionary income to send it to the candidates of our choice. We we can start right now by speaking as citizens about the things we, we care about. 
And uh, it seems to me I, one of the things we all ought to care about is preserving democracy. It is in some ways terrifying to me that there are millions of American citizens who either consciously or unconsciously are speaking and acting in ways that reflect a distaste for democracy. Yes. Um, yeah. And yet, I still go back to that 1787 story, a story from our very beginning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, current polling suggests that about maybe a third of Americans are still election denialists when it comes to the 2020 election. And they're predominantly in one party, the party that didn't win. But if I go back to 1787 and realize, oh, one-third of the people who attempted to found this democracy didn't agree on the Constitution that has been playing out in the life of this country ever since, uh, and yet they disappeared into the maw of history, that somehow enough people at, at every critical moment in our history believed in democracy to win the day, to overcome again and again and again. And then, of course, there are setbacks. There are tragic setbacks. setbacks. We've seen a bunch of them just in the last decade or so. But um, on, uh, you know, net balance, we keep managing to take steps forward that outnumber the steps backward. And I don't want to, again, candy coat it in terms of there's a cost to this. You know, there is a cost that comes with integrity and the choices that come from following the hearts and the soul's imperative of following that nonviolent love revolution. You know, I've made stands that have had big consequences for me. And the choice, you know, the opposite choice is to not be of integrity, to not follow my heart and soul's imperative. And that's a bigger cost. You know, sometimes you push against that, okay, everything in me, I'm Midwestern, and I'm a Midwestern woman who was taught to be accommodating and nice, you know? And there's a part of that that I really love about myself, that I, I, I do care about people, and I do care about their feelings, and I do care about making folks comfortable. But also, you know, there's a cost to not following the soul's imperative. And that's a higher cost than that sometimes pushback, my internal pushback, mm-hmm. because, okay, this is not going to be nice Midwestern. Yeah, yeah, and this you know, is, the, in this you know, moment. I'm so glad you said this, Carrie, what you just said, because it alerts me to the fact, it reminds me of the fact that part of the heart work that each of us needs to do is to be f- as fully aware as we can of, of our own social location in this complex mess that we're in. And I am a straight white male. And as a result of that, living in a country that was built by and for people like me, um, that works for people like me best, I still have, um, nonetheless, 
that fundamental question about for what will I for what will I pay the the greater cost? Playing it safe, refusing to use my power on behalf of the common good, or standing up for my convictions, living by my own best lights to the greatest extent possible, and claiming my integrity at every point along the way. And I come out in the same place you do, that any cost-benefit analysis tells me that it's more costly to abandon my integrity than to take a stand. It, It took me time to learn that lesson, but it's a very valuable lesson in developing an empathetic understanding of what this mess feels like to people in different social locations than my own. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do want to come back to that anthem of We Shall Overcome, because at the heart of that anthem is this incredible hope and belief in the power of love and the power of that movement forward for the better, kinder, truer, more equitable, just world. And I think that's why people keep singing songs Mm -hmm. like that, that do not candy coat it. I mean, this is is not we're all swinging on the garden gate kind of song. And it wasn't sang um, in the civil rights movement of the last century, swinging on the garden gates of, you know. No, this was a song of power. It was a song of conviction, a song that reminded us of possibility and the assurance of that as we stay true to it, yeah. there is movement forward. So, you know, I, you know, you know I'm a folk singer. So. <laughs> I've noticed that. And I actually have been thinking about a, a, a song that you have that I that, that I know has come out of struggling with this this mess and it's part of your new album we weren't necessarily planning on ending this way but I think it's a great place to end um, this song called a great wild mercy which I just love because it's it speaks of in the same way we shall overcome speaks of it speaks of these powers that break in upon the mess the beauties, the presences, the graces that stand over against the ugliness of politics in our time and and that offer illumination and clarity and, and and a way forward, kind of wings on which to fly. And they're still there. And I, th- I think that's that was the idea behind the song, A Great Wild Mercy, which I quote you in. I'm going to just, you know, the news of the world and the news of the heart. Oh, I did, not, I, th- I did not know that. Well, I'll have my people get in touch with your people. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. <laughs> but it's, yes, in the, in, the, in the last verse. But, you know, um, really wrestling with, sometimes I just get weary of it. Yeah. I get weary of the rage and the, and the um, you know, and, and I think many of us sometimes just feel weary of it. Can't we all hold this a little better, yeah. you know? But at the same time, like 
that grounding feeling and we shall overcome, there is something of goodness and decency and something true and luminous that still moves through the world and moves through our lives. I think if we just listen to the news of the world, it's easy to forget that. So the song was my own, uh, as often songs are for me, my, my own um, encouragement to myself that, yes, there it is, and there it is again. I see it in you. I see it in people I meet every day and everywhere I go. The news of the heart is that it is all still possible, you know. It is not impossible. And that's why we're even having this conversation today, you yeah. know, you and I. Yeah. Uh, because yeah. both of us believe that it's all still possible. Yep, and we're, rest, know, oh, we're wrestling our way toward hope. And we're wrestling our way there and in, in all its messiness and all its glory. So, so this is called A Great Wild Mercy. And, um, and the album does come out in October. I guess this is our October thing. So October 13th, it'll be on all streaming platforms. That's great. That's what we do these days. That's great. Uh, a Great Wild Mercy is already released as a single, so people can hear it in its recorded form, you know. Spotify, wherever you get your streaming stuff. Okay. Was a summer storm that broke the heat. She had a blue umbrella as she stepped into the street. I saw her look up from beneath the brim. Got better of it and closed it up Check tears the way that miracles arrive, then disappear. I nodded as I watched her smile and walk away. It just seemed finest prayer ever been prayed. There's a big white sky filled with stars that feel so close but feel so far. I'm tired of all the rage, tired of all the worry. I'm ready.
castle and part It'll all unfold The tale and the told The stories that will heal us And the ones we let go There's a big white sky Filled with stars That feel so close But feel so far I'm tired of all the rage Tired of all the worry Looking for some peace Trying not to hurry Leaning into something Absolutely sturdy I'm ready Thank you, Carrie, and may it be so. May it be so. You've been listening to The Growing Edge with Carrie Newcomer and Parker Palmer. Thank you for joining us today, and I hope you'll check out our next episode. And don't forget to visit our website, newcomerpalmer.com, newcomerpalmer.com, so you can join in the conversation too. And if you'd like to get our Growing Edge newsletter, please visit us on Substack. And now we have a favor to ask. If you liked today's show, rate us and leave a review on iTunes. It's the best way to help us reach new audiences and bring more voices into this conversation. All the music you heard on today's show was written by our own Carrie Newcomer. And much gratitude to Gary Walters for performing the song The Clean Edge of Change. And much appreciation to Allison Quance for creative envisioning, direction, production, and because she is a great wild mercy in and of herself. 